0: Alright, we are continuing in our uh, short series during Advent, um, looking forward to the hope that God has for his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Just as kids are right now excitedly waiting for Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, whenever you open your presents, we are told to wait expectantly, longingly, patiently for what God is going to do and the new world that he is going to bring us in. So we, we are using Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, to help set our gaze on that hope, help whet our appetites um, for that hope. And today we're going to pick off where we left off last week. So we started this last week, covered the first four verses of Revelation 21. I'm going to start in verse 5 today. We're also going to jump ahead to chapter 22 because there's a lot of similar... Um, themes, language, and ideas in in chapter 22. Okay, so we're going to jump right into it. Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So we get this image of God the Father sitting on a throne. This is an image that signifies rule, God's rule and God's reign. We know God is not in human form. God the Father is not in human form, doesn't have a human body. So this language of sitting on a throne, a throne that is in heaven, is telling us that God is ruling over all things. God is not in Rome. God is not in Jerusalem. God is not in New York. God is in heaven ruling from his throne over all things. His kingdom is over all He has power and authority over all. In the book of Revelation, this this theme, this image of God on his throne is first introduced in chapter 4. And it's helpful to hear a little bit about what that has to say. So in chapter 4, starting at verse 2, we read, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on a throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, so rather than giving us um, a description of God's physical features, we are given a description of the effect of God's presence in heaven. He, he radiates with glory and splendor and beauty, which is signified by these jewels and the rainbow with an appearance of emerald. He rules with great power and authority and might and glory over all things. Signified by the throne and this flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder which come from the throne. It brings to mind Mount Sinai as the, as the, the Israelites came and, and witnessed God at, at Mount Sinai. In powerful displays of creation. As you read on in chapter 4 there, you see that God is worshipped by all of the angels and the host of men and creatures around the throne. and They sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So, I said last week that one of the things that Revelation is attempting to do is pull back the curtains on the true state of our world, on the true state of reality. This is really the case. God is really on his throne, ruling right now over all things, being worshiped by all in his presence. Even when we don't always see that with our eyes, today, Revelation is helping us see what is actually true. Helping us see reality. When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what he and what we ought to mean by that. Part of that, at least. Bring about here what is happening there. Bring about this right recognition of you Ruling over all things, you being worshipped with joy and celebration by your creatures. Help us to behold here what is already true in heaven. And then back in chapter 21, God speaks from his throne. He says, behold, I am making all things new. So this should bring to mind verse 1. Where we we read that, behold, I am creating a new heavens, or uh, John sees a new heavens and a new earth. Behold, I am making all things new. God is going to do a radical transformation of this world. He will not leave us, leave the world as it is, wrecked by sin and evil. He will remake this world. As I said last week, it seems best to see this as, not as a brand new starting over from scratch, but a radical renewal of what God has been doing. Just as we, when God calls us to himself and he makes us a new creation, in Paul's terms, God is going to all do this to all of creation. But this new work of God, this making all things new, is also a, a finishing of what God has been doing from the beginning, right? There is something new, but there is also something old to this. It is done, he says, which means that a work is being finished. God is bringing to all of creation, all of his purposes to their intended end. And so we see that God is both the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's the creator of all things. He was there in the beginning. He was the one who was remaking, redeeming, and restoring his creation. He is there in the end. And so, his rule is not only over all peoples and nations in a spatial sense, but also over all time and history. His rule knows no end. It has no bounds. There's nothing outside the bounds of his rule. One way to think about this making new and completing of things is that there's both a continuity and discontinuity to what God is doing, to what he will do. There is both things that will continue and things that will be discontinuous, will not continue. So you can think of some analogies to, to help you understand this. On the one hand, the newness and completion of that day will not simply be like putting the last piece of a puzzle in the puzzle. Boom, you're finished. Certainly, that is true in a sense, but it's not merely one more degree of all the things that have been happening before. There's more discontinuity than that. There's more change. But neither is it like a business owner shutting down a business that was failing and had lots of problems and deciding to open up a brand new business completely unrelated to the previous business. There's more continuity than that. Perhaps the best analogy is the one that Paul uses in Romans 8, and the analogy of childbirth. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the birthing of a child, on the one hand, has lots of continuity with what has been happening for the previous nine months. It is the same life that God has been developing and preparing for this day. Birth is the final step of this long process. It is the end of the process in one sense, but it's also the beginning of a new process. And in coming out of the womb, there is much discontinuity. There is a radical change that happens. This is not just one more step in all of the other days that came. This this is different. The child begins to breathe air. The child begins to open their eyes and see the world in all its vastness and colors to experience life in the presence of his or her family. Of course, this is connected to what has been happening for the last nine months, but it's also different. What God will do for his people on that day is new like this. We will be delivered into a world much like this one, but radically new. Our eyes will be open to see life, to see the glory of God and the glory of His church, His bride that He has accomplished. Our eyes will be open to appreciate anew the beauty and the creativity and the perfection of this life. We will be in the presence of our Creator and God like never before. But we will still be us. God does not do away with us or his creation, but he renews them both as he completes his eternal plan. And so there is both an end here and and a beginning. There's end of pregnancy and all of its pains in the analogy that Paul gives us and the beginning of an eternal life, a new life. And while it can be a little bit hard as you're reading this to imagine it, I find that one of the best ways to put reality to this is to consider how desperately our world needs this radical newness. I think particularly today about the atrocities in in the wars that are happening in Israel and Gaza as well as in Ukraine And those are just a couple of examples of conflicts currently going on around the world. And perhaps you've heard of some of the horrendous accounts in these wars. And all of this is not merely explained in political terms or in economic or cultural or religious terms even. Behind and in the midst of all of this, all of this pain and suffering and atrocities is sin. The same disease that has wreaked havoc on our world for thousands of years. And when these wars are over, which we pray is soon, unfortunately, the problem will still be there. Unfortunately, our world will still need this. There will still be deep, unfathomable evil out there. We will still live in a world that is deeply broken. In other words, all of our attempts to fix and repair things with politics and money and education while they can bring about some good will not ultimately fix this problem. We'll not bring about a new heavens and a new earth that we desire and that we groan for. We need God to work. We need God to do something that we cannot do. We are groaning for this. Our world is literally groaning for this. But we... Don't have to only look out there to know this. You don't have to go further than your own heart and your own homes to know this and to feel this groaning. You know the sin and evil and hurt that you yourself can commit to your loved ones, to those closest to you. We don't have to go very far to see that we ourselves are in desperate need for God to make all things new. And so we have this hope and promise that God will do something about all of this. And he will do something that only he can do. If you, as you read through this, notice the emphasis on what, uh, that, that this is God's work. I am making all things new. I am the Alpha and Omega. To the thirsty, I will give to drink from the springs of the water of life without payment. I, I, I. This is not where human history is headed on its, in its own strength. This is not something we can bring about in our own wisdom and ability. We are dependent on God. God will do it. God will give it. So what this means is that we should be careful about setting our hope in things in this world. Careful about looking to this world to satisfy us. Careful about becoming triumphalistic in this world. God hasn't promised that all will be made right in our life. God hasn't promised that we will find complete satisfaction in this life, or that all persecution and suffering will be removed in this life. Or even that God's people and his church and Christian ministries will always be large and influential and respected. Or that Christians will always win seats to in the political realm or win victories. We don't have these assurances and promises. We can hope for them. We can pray for such things. But ultimately, we will always be dependent on God doing something that is beyond our ability to make happen. Now, we've been considering the rule of God, which we see and experience in part now. But we will see and experience in full on that day, and we long for that. As this passage goes on, we get a picture of the effect of, of what it will be like to live under God's perfect rule with nothing hindering it, where there is no longer any sin. And so this verse six says, to the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. Now, does that sound good? That sounds good, especially if, imagine you were living in a desert climate where water is pretty scarce, you can't go to the grocery store, you can't turn on the faucet and get water. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life, clean, life-giving water without payment. I mentioned last week that Revelation draws heavily on um, themes and ideas and language, Um, from throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. There's only over 400 references to the Old Testament in, in Revelation. And many of these references come from the book of Isaiah. We read a couple last week. This here also points us back to Isaiah, Isaiah 55, where we read, "'Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price.'" Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. You see this theme throughout Scripture. You have Jesus' um, this famous statement where he says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, referring to the Spirit, Jesus also tells the woman at the well that he could give her living water. So what is this all saying? Well, this is about satisfaction. This is about being satisfied and sustained by that which is truly good, by God himself. If you think of thirst being quenched, you are talking about being satisfied. But, but it's even more than that. It's being nourished and sustained. God is saying, come to me and I will satisfy you. I will sustain you. I will give you what is truly good, what you truly long for and need. Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table before me. We have this image of God setting out a feast of satisfying food and life-giving water for us. Who would not take up that invitation, especially if it's without cost? Come, come. Look at what I'm preparing for you. Do you see how God calls us to himself, how he compels us and invites us to come to him with promises of satisfaction and joy and feasting and all that is good? This picture of living water and being satisfied in it is then expanded in in Revelation 22. This water of life reappears, but rather than a spring, it's now a river. So the first couple of verses of, of Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me, so John is being given this vision, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Once again, this is drawing on language, themes, and ideas from earlier in scripture. The tree of life is the tree that God had banned Adam and Eve from eating after they sinned. Um, And and if you go back to Genesis, it says if they ate of this, they would have lived forever. But here, the tree of life is freely accessible, freely available to all. Eternal life is is given. In the context of the Garden of Eden, this healing of the nations likely implies a, a undoing of the curse. The curse of sin. Whereas sin brought death. And all sorts of evils and pains, God brings healing, and he wipes out sin, death, pain, mourning, and evil. The curse is over. This passage also draws on the book of Ezekiel, and from a vision that Ezekiel is given in in chapter 47 of a new temple where God dwells. So, I'm going to read a couple verses here um, from from verse uh, Ezekiel 47. Says, then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And if you jump ahead to verse 12, and on the banks on both sides of the river there will be grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Notice the similar language to Revelation 22. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the temple. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So John's vision in Revelation here at the end of our Bibles is bringing together all of these themes and images and promises from across scripture to describe not so much the physical makeup of our future home, but what it will be like to live there what effect it will have, what God will do to us. To say that there is a river of life in the middle of this city flowing from the throne of God seems to be saying the same thing John said. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is symbolical, image-rich language of being satisfied by God. Of continual, never-ending enjoyment of God about the whole world being healed by God. And the fact that this river or spring flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb is showing us that all of this joy and satisfaction, everything good is coming from him. It's coming from his rule. It's coming from the throne where he rules. In the place where God's rule is never-ending and all-encompassing, There is life giving water. There's healing. And it brings this life and and healing wherever it goes. You have this tree of life growing on both sides of the river, bearing fruit every month, which means that it's always accessible. The blessings are continual, ever present for the people of God, they're never out of season. They're never dry due to drought. The blessings of God will never cease. In the presence of God, with God's work completed in us, we will be healed and refreshed continually. And all of this will come from the rule of God over us, with nothing to hinder it, not even our sin. If you look at some of these promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, they often focus in on a renewed temple, a renewed sanctuary, where we, whereas our hopes today can often focus on renewed governments and economics and education and all of this stuff, notice here that the focus is on a renewed relationship with God. The focus is on being in the presence of God. Again, as I said last week, the high point of our hope is here and now a relationship with our creator God. It's not just physical things being better, the removal of evil. It is being with our creator God and having direct access to his, his goodness, his rule in all of our life. Again, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for this now. We pray to experience this now. But we continually long for the day when it will be a full reality. Now, we are told that this promise is for the thirsty. Again and again, we have this language of come everyone who thirsts. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Which means that these promises and these hopes are not only for those who merely believe in them, but those who long for them. Those who thirst. Those, in Paul's words, groan for them. These are promises and hopes for those who know that this life, this world in its current form, is not their home. Those who have not put their hope in this world or in themselves or their accomplishments, their wealth or security, but in God. These hopes are for those who wait patiently for God to do something. God to make all things new. Which means, among other things, in this life, being thirsty is not a bad thing. In this life, living with unquenched desires and unmet thirsts is not a bad thing. Does not mean you are doing something wrong. It is a quality of living in this present world when things, all things, are not yet made new. All is not right. That desire you have for something to satisfy you, for a perfectly balanced schedule, whatever that is, for enough money to to do whatever we would like to do for easier relationships, for a more enjoyable job, more freedom, for a spouse. All of these are meant to point us to God and call us to wait on God. While the desires themselves may be good, we do not have the promise that all of them will be fulfilled in this life. As God's people, we must continue to live with Some unquenched thirst, unmet desires until Jesus returns. This is just called living by faith. So be careful of making an idol out of your desires. Be careful of equating God's goodness with, well, he must do these things for me or else. That's not the world we live in, and that will easily lead you away from God. You have likely heard the, the well known C.S. Lewis quote about this. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. So you can think of what's here in Revelation, Isaiah 55, about come and eat, God preparing this table, this feast before us. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased in other words do not be satisfied by what you find in this world. Do not think that you will, will ever be satisfied by what you find in this world. Do not lower your expectations and say, well, this is the best that is going to be. No, keep look looking onward. Keep hoping in the one who has promised to make all things new. And then all of these promises are made all the more wonderful by that simple phrase, without payment, without payment. Isaiah 55 says it as well. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What a wonderful truth this is. This is not something you purchase. You can't. This is not something you earn. You can't. This is not something you secure for yourself. You can't. God only gives it by grace, and we can only receive it by grace. There's no other option. All that God is preparing for his people, life in his presence, all of our desires and longings and thirsts being met, true and complete healing, the removal of tears, pain, and death, all of this is a gift of grace purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross, in your place. There was a price for it. You don't pay it. You can't. God does it for us. This is the message of the whole Bible. That God is not only our creator and our judge, but also our savior. That salvation and life come from God and God alone. And must be received as a gift. All we need and desire are found in him. If only we would come to him. We live in a world, and I assume that this is the way the world has always been, but we especially live in a world where, there is, where this is really hard for us. There's a lot of expectation for us to make it work, make something of ourselves, prove ourselves, figure out who we are, and then proclaim that to the world and, and, and live it out. But none of this satisfies And it comes with great cost, with great weight, with great pressure. In the words of Paul, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of this goodness, these, as Lewis said, this unblushing promises of rewards that God has given us to whet our appetite to consider that day, it is all without cost. And on that day, we will glorify God for the freeness of this gift. We will glorify God for his grace to us in Jesus, the lamb who was slain. We we will never cease to give glory to God for him doing this for us. And, And as we are satisfied and delighted And filled with joy, we will make much of him. That moment of our greatest satisfaction and joy will lead us only closer and closer to him, lead us only to ever make more and more of him, to glory and delight ourselves in him who is our greatest good. Unlike this life so often, when when we experience this satisfaction and joy and contentment, we will not see that as a reason to not need God, but a reason to give all the more glory to God. And he will do it for us. Let's pray.